Well, the first thing I did right was the day I started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on, hold on. Hello, I'm Christian F. Nunes, and welcome to Feminism Now, featuring leaders and activists who are on the front lines of the fight for constitutional quality, economic justice, and reproductive rights. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on, hold on. We have a great guest for you today. I'm here with Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter. She is known globally as a thought leader to many people about her ideas on money, voting, and opening the doors to elevate people's voices in the U.S. I'm so excited to talk to Latasha. Latasha, welcome to Feminism Now. And thank you for just opening up the show with that beautiful voice and that song. But I think you just opened it up and really started this conversation outright because when we really think about what we're at, what's at stake and what we're seeing happen in this world right now, I think we really have to think about keeping our eyes focused on that prize. So I want us to talk about a little bit about how you decided and your co-founder and you all decided to start Black Voters Matters Fund. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how that came to manifest? I can. You know, I have been a organizer, community organizer, political organizer for almost 30 years. And I'm a native of Selma, Alabama. I didn't understand why some communities, you cross the railroad tracks in the South, that on one side of the communities, uh, the railroad tracks, the homes look a certain kind of way. The streets were paved a certain kind of way. Sidewalks were uh, on that side. But then when you were on the other side of town, there were no sidewalks. There was, you know, the pavement, you know, all of, there was just these physical differences that you could see. And so that kind of led me on this path of politics of literally trying to figure out what was needed to shift what I was seeing in my world. And so what we determined as organizers of what we had experienced in doing this work in the last few decades is that there were three big things that we thought were needed. We thought that one, that in terms of really being able to push policy and have uh, Black communities engage in this conversation, but engage even in the action of shifting and building power, that one, we needed money. We needed money on the ground. We needed to create some kind of vehicle that could actually put resources on communities So money was a big part. That's why it's called Black Voters Matter Fund. We're very intentional that we would create a mechanism to actually put resources that would be invested in grassroots organized. I call it the three M's. And so we wanted to create an organization that one would move money. Second, that would actually help build movement. And then the third thing is we recognize that many of the messages that were coming out of the South the messages around black voters that Black voters were in these red states or these conservative states and that our voice didn't matter or we were talked about as if we were just victimized and as we didn't have any power. And so our third focus and goal was how could we shift the message? How can we shift a message that wasn't about Black voters not having any power, but literally would center that Black voters had power, we could impact and make a difference in the election. So it was about money, message and movement building. And so in 2016, we decided that we want to start an organization that would really focus on how we build local power. Our first investment was in a small community where we had done an analysis around Georgia, that this small seat in Georgia that actually could make the difference 
in elections around the state house seat. But nobody was looking at it. We didn't see any investment. We talked to people down there. Cliff Albright, who was the other co-founder and my business partner, he literally went to his son's school and raised our first capital, our first seed investment at his son's school. And we made an investment of less than $2,000 in a mobilization for a state representative seat in Georgia. The significance of that is that seat kept one party from having a supermajority to majority. And if you know anything about what kind of untapped, un, just unrelentless power happens with a supermajority, you would understand how significant that was. This was a seat that we invested less than $2,000, that we actually worked with our partners. We were with them in terms of strategy. We helped lift up and amplify the message. And then at that point, we were like, wait a minute, our model actually works. And so since that time, we've actually invested over $33 million that we've raised and regranted to over a thousand grassroots black led groups throughout the nation. We worked very deeply in 12 states. Most of them are in the South, but we have some up South states that are very important to us that um, Michigan, Pennsylvania, we're doing some work in Wisconsin. We work in over 20 states on some form of fashion. Sometimes it's a little bit lighter touch, but, and, and our work really consists of those things. One, we're moving money. We're literally helping organizations amplify the message and shift a message of message of empowerment, not a message that we're victimized and we're building movement. And so we have a series of, of programs and activities that we do with our partners. I think of ourselves as like the special ops. Right. And I think you you hit the needle on the head. One of the things you said, what I was going to say is that what you really shifted from people trying to victimize and trying to put these negative connotations on what the community is not able to do to really focusing on the strengths of the community and empowering the community to show really what the community is capable to do. So your model really focuses on empowerment. You showed really how focusing on local politics, it really can transform the lives of people right there. Sometimes I think we overly focus on federal elections and we forget how local elections really have more impact on people's daily lives <laughs> than only sometimes only focusing on the federal elections, you know, and like the president. You know, it's like, well, what what's happening in your school board? <laughs> what's happening in that city council street? It's so interesting because, you know, if anybody's taking a political science class in Poli Sci 101, the first thing they tell you is all politics are local, right? But we operate as if only the presidential elections. That was part of the impetus of us starting Black Voters Matter, because we knew that at the at on the local level, on the local and state level, many of these laws that have been very reactionary and very hurtful to our communities, literally, they come into play on the local and the state level. And for us, our politics can't just be contingent upon whether there's this charismatic candidate or not, that ultimately communities that this kind of back and forth around, well, we've got to wait till the next savior rides up on a white horse to save us out of that. That is unacceptable. You know, what we wanted to do is just shift the paradigm and say that this is really about power. Let's say what this is about. This is about power. And this is about having communities engaged, astute enough, educated enough, informed enough and inspired enough that we're regardless of whether we've got an a excellent candidate and the goal is to always have an excellent candidate or a candidate that may not just quite be there, that we are operating and functioning our agency and our power, that literally whoever is in that seat, 
whatever political party, whatever candidate is in that seat is going to feel some sense of accountability to the people who are literally in that area and actively engaged in the political process. The work that you all are doing is so crucial because you're making sure that accountability is occurring. And I know recently uh, we saw some things shifting and changing in Alabama, right? And can you talk to us about what we're seeing in Alabama, what, what's been going on with gerrymandering? And, and first, can you explain to listeners what gerrymandering is? I like to always educate. <laughs> and then talk about what the shift is happening in, 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 in Alabama, considering what the past history has been in Alabama with gerrymandering. Just to kind of give a, just like a, a, a short version of gerrymandering. It's been a tool that has actually been a form of voter suppression. There's a, a, a way that maps have been drawn in such a way that they call it, they compact the district. So they'll take and grab like all of the black voters and put them in one district to as to dilute their impact on being able to get multiple, have representation in multiple districts. There's another way that they do it. They have done it historically called cracking, where the district will be drawn in such a way that actually splits the black vote which in fact dilutes their their power, their ability to be able to impact elections and have someone have someone representative of that community. What happened essentially in Alabama, Alabama is a state that the quarter of the population are African-Americans. And there's only been one competitive district for African-Americans to actually play in terms of getting a congressional seat. And so that had been challenged where a group of citizens were saying, no, 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 looking at the numbers, it's called the Milligan case, Looking at the numbers, we, in fact, should have two districts that we should be competitive in two districts in the state. And so this particular case went to all the way up to the Supreme Court. And must I remind people how conservative the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court, again, has not been a friend to voting rights or protecting voting rights in this country, our current Supreme Court. But it was so egregious what the state of Alabama did. It was so egregious that the Supreme Court told the state of Alabama, you've got to draw another district. This is just not acceptable. And so they sent it back to the state. The state refused to, to literally draw a district that would make it competitive. And so as a result, they sent a map up. It was rejected by the court. The court actually had to assign a special master to draw districts that to actually help look at the map and draw the map in such a way that it would be more equitable and competitive to have two African-American districts that literally should have been done years and years ago. That has to be seriously egregious because this same same Supreme Court has violated, I don't know, how many other people's constitutional rights the past year we've seen, the overturning of how many, you know what I'm saying, cases. So imagine, I mean, just how egregious this really was. And then for the in the state still to be like, oh, no, we don't care. We don't care. But it also has to let you know what the people in this state have been dealing with, right? Absolutely. And I think it's indicative of this fight around voting rights. Alabama is the place where the voting rights movement took place. The civil rights movement took place in this particular area. A lot of the work around voting rights, we're really talking about the same area. So here we are 60 years down the road and that fight is still going on because it hasn't really been resolved. And if people know what happened in 2012 with the gutting of the voting rights, that case actually came from Alabama as well, Shelby County. And so there is an ongoing fight in the state of Alabama, but I think throughout this nation around an active effort to literally exclude people and make it more difficult for some communities to be able to have representation. 
And that's part of the work that we do at Black Voters Matter as well. That's why we think it's so important that we're empowering grassroots groups to help build out the ecosystem, to be able to put money on the ground so people can actually resist and organize and also be able to create a different framework for people to really see their agency and that this isn't just about election. This is about our power. Your work is still, still very, very, very important. And I thank you for sharing that information so people understand why organizations like yours are so needed. And and also the fight that is still continuing and the work that still has to go to organize and mobilize. And like you said, movement build. There are so many election deniers. There's so many people who are still sending out disinformation about what's really occurring. And, and it's a strategy that they're using. And so we have to continue to make sure that organizations and, and movements and groups like yours are there to really sending that empowered messaging to really mobilize and, and make people know that, and especially Black and brown voters know that they have this power. We are going to com- communicate the messages of really our true narratives out there so that people will get out there and vote and run and also hold people accountable. That's right. That's right. Now, you'll also see a backlash, which is also what we're experiencing right now. But we're experiencing this backlash not because we're losing it's because we're winning. The electorate is shifting. It's becoming younger. It's becoming more diverse. Young people are more educated around certain issues, you know, and all of those things are going to change the political landscape forever. And there are those that are in power that know this and are willing to go through extraordinary efforts to really be able to stop it in any way they can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I want to shift it a little bit and I want to talk about women. Because as a leader, you are a leader, but you're also a woman leader. And we also know that Black women have really, truly been leading. Can you tell us what is the role you feel that Black women play in voter turnout and saving our democracy? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting. I think Black women have a unique position. We sit squarely at the intersection of sexism and racism, which I think is the two-headed dragon (laughs) that has been undermined democracy from the beginning. And so I think because we fit uniquely at that intersection, I think both things uniquely impact us. And I think because of that, you're seeing our response that ultimately that there are those who have consistently tried to crush us, right, and sitting uniquely at that intersection. And I think that we challenge I think even our very presence challenged white patriarchy because let's call it what it is. What we're all fighting against, all women should be fighting against, and men as well, is white male patriarchy. And because I think black women sit uniquely in this position around this intersection of sexism and racism, I think we have a particular kind of way that we see white male patriarchy because it it, it doesn't benefit us, right? It's never benefited us. And I think ultimately because of how hurtful and harmful that white patriarchy has been to everybody, but in a particular way to black women, I think that we have literally developed this muscle, this muscle, this skill, this spirit, this voice to actually challenge it in a unique way that literally we've been able to move past our fear and really have our North Star saying that, no, we're no longer going to be subject to just white patriarchal systems, that ultimately we're going to stand in the space and amplify our voices amplify our vision, and literally move forward to a victory that will serve all of us. Absolutely. Amen to that. 
And I love what you say when you said that we fight for a collective. So as we think about how we're fighting for a collective and we're approaching the election that's coming up, what should we be fighting for on the ballot that's coming up? What's going to matter most to us that's going to help us fight for this collective? Yeah, I think that this issue of abortion, we've got to deal with this because we've got to start seeing this as regardless of what your position is on it. And I think people have valid positions on all sides, right? Of, of belief, whatever your belief is, your belief. But ultimately, the state should never, ever, ever, ever how dangerous it is to actually have authority or agency over a woman's body. Like if we really fundamentally think about how flawed that is, that the government is going to tell women what we can and can't do with our bodies. I think it's really important that one, we're focused on seeing that as a human rights issue. That is beyond like it's an a, 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 a issue of choice, but it's not even just an issue of choice. It's an issue of agency. I have agency, right? This is agency. The second thing is I think it's really important for us. We cannot allow voting rights to fall to the wayside, that we've got to push and centralize and prioritize voting rights and voting rights legislation. Like it, regardless of what Congress is in, we have to be relentless. There are more women in this country than men. When women decide that we want change to happen, it will happen. Part of the other piece, I think the third piece, is we've got to get on the same page, that women have to actually vote for our interests. And what we've seen in some communities is that women will actually vote for the interests of men over their own interests and follow their husbands instead of literally recognizing that when you empower women, you empower entire families. And when women are marginalized, our children are marginalized, which means our communities are marginalized. And that's across the board. And I think that goes back to we have to get to a place when women start recognizing they are enough by themselves. And I think, you know, always being treated as second class for so long, it becomes like that self-fulfilling prophecy for some where they can't separate, you know, and that like you're like we've been talking about, you know, for the last bit, that white male patriarchy does not do justice for anyone. And so we do need to have women get to a place where they truly understand that they need to get on the same page, that that is not doing service for any of them. And then they need to understand that they are enough so that they start voting for the best interests of themselves. Right. It's not working for us. It will definitely not work for our daughters. Like we're we're in a space that we're we're literally back at a conversation whether women have agency over their bodies, that the state is telling us what we can or can't do with our own bodies. We have to really understand how intense that is and how dangerous that is, not just for that issue, but literally it opens up Pandora's box. For now, when you don't have agency over your body, I mean, what else is there? <laughs> yeah, and like you said, Pandora's box. And then who else are you going to come for next, right? <laughs> and at what extreme? Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that. I have one last question for you because I don't want to forget the other part of you because you're so dynamic and have so many wonderful parts. Uh, how do you use your art and your singing as a form of activism? And that's the last question I want to ask for you to take us out on. Oh, thank you. That, so there's three ways. One, I believe when I study movements, it hasn't just been the strategy of a movement that has made the shift. And I said this earlier, it has been the spirit of the movement that part of allows us to survive, right? What makes us survive when everything around us is hopeless? Like it's spirit is being a tap in. What makes uh, someone who's actually gone through multiple assaults, um, someone who has had a horrendous childhood, someone who has actually gone through extreme abuse 
what makes them survive? There's something, there's this human spirit that is inside us that allows us to survive. And so that's our greatest resource. And I think sometimes it's our most underutilized and untapped resource. And what music gives the opportunity to do for me, and I think for many others, that music gives us a moment just to tap into our humanity. Just to remember a little baby, my grandson, before he could talk, he was singing, right? My mother said I was singing before. There's something about that is natural for us to kind of be tapped into like the rhythm of life, be tapped into something that that goes transcends beyond our politics, transcends around all of these labels that put us in. And that just allows us to feel, to be in touch with the feeling of our humanity. You know, if you're singing a song, there's nothing like our favorite song coming on and everybody's singing together in unison. There's something empowering in that process of us really to be able to just speak and and speak and really be in art and be in community together. And I always tell people, culture will eat strategy for breakfast. You're going to have the greatest strategy, right? But culture is such a powerful tool for all of us because that's essentially how do we interact and relate to each other and understand each other. So those are all the reasons why music has been such a profound tool for my personal life, but also I think a profound tool and an underutilized tool for the work. Thank you so much for sharing this with us, Latasha. We support you in the work that you're doing. And listeners, thank you so much for spending time with Latasha Brown and I today at Feminism Now. So let's remember what she said. We fight for the collective, culture each strategy, and keep your eye on the prize. Thank you, Latasha Brown, for joining us today. If you like what you hear, please go to now.org, read up on our core issues and our approach to advancing women's equality. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. Have a great day. Thank you.